Our society loves cities. As a matter of fact, uh, yesterday uh, at the wedding, uh, one of the family members of, uh, of Curtis uh, mentioned to me in passing uh, that after seeing the, the city of Austin, it makes sense why Curtis decided to stay in Austin a little while longer after he graduated. Uh, we indeed live in a city that seems to uh, be quite attractive to a lot of people. And uh, the city is growing by leaps and bounds more uh, quicker than any of us who are living in the city would like it to grow. But cities have an attractional force. We love cities. Our society loves cities. Uh, usually, people love cities for things like the architecture, the skyline, the downtown, the vibrant culture, the educational opportunities, the economic growth, the intellectual influence that comes in the life of cities. Yet, life in, in American cities, at least, also has a negative side to it. Uh, life in many of our cities has become more difficult from increased traffic to high prices or increased violence due to the decreased law enforcement. Sadly, in many cities, uh, the growth of the city and the influence of the that comes in the lives of, of these cities comes at the cost of a lack of peace. So oftentimes, people who have lived in the city and want to experience a little more peace, they figure out a way to go out of the, of the city, away from the city, somewhere out to the outskirts. Um, so that oftentimes, the idea of living in a vibrant, influential, opportunist-filled city comes with a cost of lack of peace. Did you know that in the Bible, one of the Psalms of the Bible adores the life of a city, particularly the city of Jerusalem? But the reasons for adoring the city were not because of any of the reasons we typically find attractive about our modern-day cities. Do you know why the Bible would speak highly about this particular city in the Old Testament times, the city of Jerusalem? This morning we get to find out why. But I want to encourage you to just put on your antennas that it's not for any of the reasons that you and I would find modern-day cities attractive. So it's going to change our mindset to think, why should we find a city attractive and desirous? As we look at the psalm, Psalm 122, I pray that the Lord will help us see applications for us today, especially when we will understand how Old Testament city of Jerusalem functioned at the time in its history and how it foreshadowed a reality that far exceeds the physical boundaries of that physical city. So this morning, we want to look at an axiomoron, peace in the city. Peace in the city. Would you open God's word to Psalm 122, from verse 1 to verse 9. This is the word of the Lord for us. As we are working our way through a short series through the Psalms of Ascent. A song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. 
for my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you join me in asking God to bless the preaching of his word in our hearts as we hear? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the way you have revealed yourself through the establishment of the city that the psalmist speaks of. Father, we pray that you would enable our hearts to hear your word as you have intended it in its context and to understand the realities that you have foreshadowed with the city of Jerusalem at that time. Father, we pray that Christ would be exalted through this message and our hearts would be open to hear. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Cities. Why would a city be important in the Bible? The Bible starts in the very first pages of its book with a garden and ends in the very last pages of its book with a city. We might say the entire story of humanity is a story that begins in a garden and ends in a city. But before the eternal reality that is consummated in the eternal city that God is preparing for his people to dwell in forever, before that eternal reality is consummated, God led King David in the Old Testament times to establish the city of Jerusalem as a capital city of the people of God under the Old Covenant. This city was designed to be unique in the Old Testament times. It was designed to embody in one place realities that would be fulfilled in Jesus, as we will see. And the city presented in this psalm was the ideal place to be in for any Old Testament believer. It was the place for permanent peace and security and well-being. Who wouldn't want to live in such a city? Now, before we jump in to understand what the city was about, I need to give a caution. It's very easy for us today to associate the city of Psalm 122, of Psalm 122, with a modern day, present day city of Jerusalem. And I want to give you this caution that we should not associate the Old Testament city of Jerusalem to the present day city of Jerusalem. There is a vast difference between God's ideals as he established them and revealed them to us about the city of Jerusalem at the time of David and the capital city or the, the modern day city of the nation of uh, Israel. Dispensationalist theology emerged and grew at the beginning of the 20th century. Some of you may not know what that means. You may not even recognize the label. But one of its popular effects was to begin promoting the notion that praying for the peace of Jerusalem, as we are commanded in this psalm, is referring today to praying for the modern-day city of Jerusalem. Such campaign takes a language from Psalm 122, but unfortunately it is a misapplication of the text. We must seek to understand Psalm 122 in its context 
and understand how a Jewish person viewed the city of Jerusalem at the time David wrote the psalm. Then we must remember how the key elements of the city of Jerusalem, why David was so excited about the city of Jerusalem, how those elements were to be fulfilled in Jesus. And only after we make these interpretive moves, understanding it in its context, and then seeing how its, how its elements were fulfilled in Jesus, only after we ask those questions are we ready to make proper applications for us today. The psalm, through its adoration of the city at the time of David's reign, presents for us what God's grace was able to create in the lives of Old Testament believers under the Old Covenant. And when we understand what the Old Testament city of Jerusalem points to, we will see how the lessons of this psalm apply today to the life of the church. So why is this psalm exalting the, the life uh, of, belief, of, of, of the people of God within this city of Jerusalem? Why is this psalm exalting the city of Jerusalem? Well, as we will see, there's three stanzas in this psalm. And each of the stanzas present one of the reasons. And let me summarize the reasons for us. Why the Old Testament makes a big deal about the city of Jerusalem in this particular time. Because of its worship. First reason why this psalm is excited about the city of Jerusalem at the time is because of its worship. Second, because of its unity in thankfulness under God's reign. Because of its unity in thankfulness under God's reign. And thirdly, because of its peace. Because of its peace. Each of these lessons, each of these reasons, as we will see, have been fulfilled in Jesus. So for us New Testament believers under the new covenant, we read the psalm and we cannot leave the lens of Jesus to the side and just focus on the city of Jerusalem as if Jesus never showed up. We must read and see how Jesus actually is intricate to each of the reasons uh, that the city of Jerusalem at the time of David was, was designed for. So this morning, as we look at this psalm, at the three stanzas of the psalm, and at each of these characteristics, let's consider why, why the Bible would be excited about this particular city and how it foreshadows the realities that God has planned for all the people of God, uh, no matter where they live. Number one, gladness for worship. Gladness for worship. Look at how the psalm begins. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Now for us today, as New Testament believers, the house of the Lord is no longer the physical temple in Jerusalem. For us New Testament believers, the house of the Lord is the church. Now you say, where do we get that from? From the Bible. Where from? Let me just take you to one of the several passages. Hebrews 3, 5 and 6. Hebrews 3, 5 and 6. Listen to the following words. The author of Hebrews speaks about comparing Moses and Jesus. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So who is the house of the Lord? For the new covenant, 
The house of the Lord is no longer the physical temple in Jerusalem, but it is the people of God. Those who have put their faith and, and trust in Jesus and who hold on our confidence and are boasting in our hope in Christ. It's not the physical temple. It's not a physical place. But the gathering of God's redeemed people, those who have been saved by God's grace, who continue to persevere in their faith, they are called God's house. The house of the Lord. So, when we think about what was the city of Jerusalem uh, famous for and why David wanted to boast in the city, the first thing he actually speaks about the city is its worship. The house of the Lord was there. And not only worship and the, house, the presence of the house of the Lord, but gladness about being invited to go to the house of the Lord. How often do you react with gladness to coming to worship in the house of the Lord? And I'm not referring to you coming to these walls or this property, but you coming to this gathering of God's people. Some of us gather regularly because of habit. Now, it is a good habit to have to gather regularly with God's people for worship. But it should not be merely a habit. It is a good thing, and some of us gather for worship out of duty. And we do have a duty to gather with God's people regularly. It is commanded by the Lord to gather regularly. So it's not a bad thing to gather out of duty. It is a bad thing to gather merely out of duty. The question is whether you gather just for habit or just out of duty. The question is, is it only those? I wonder how many of us this morning or in our lives, in this season of our lives, we consider the gathering, the calling to worship, the coming to the Lord, and it's a matter of gladness. It's a reaction of gladness. Well, friends, when we remember the immeasurable cost that God paid for our salvation to bring us, to extend to us the invitation to come to Him for worship. You see, what we deserve is not the invitation to come. Because of our sin, what we deserve is the command to go away. That is what we deserve. So the mere invitation to come to worship, to come together in the presence of this God against whom we have rebelled, the mere invitation to come is actually an act of God's grace. Because what we deserve is to go away. Oh, friends, when we consider what it cost God to make possible the, the extending of the invitation to come and worship. Well, friends, when we consider the suffering of the eternal Son of God, His death on the cross, and then His subsequent resurrection, oh, friends, consider what reasons we have to come with gladness when we are being told, come to worship. Come to the house of the Lord for worship. Oh, friends, don't let mere habit or mere duty to deprive you of the joy, of the gladness to come to the Lord for worship. But also, on the other side, there are seasons in our lives when we lack joy. And gladness. Don't let the lack of joy to cause you not to come 
to worship at the house of the Lord. Don't say, well, just because I don't feel it, I don't think I'm going to go. Just because I'm not in the mood for it today, I don't think I'm going to go. Because the Lord doesn't want worship without gladness. Friends, our gladness will oscillate. And in those moments, it is helpful to come out of habit. And it is helpful to remind each other of the duty that we have not to forsake our assembling together. So just because you lack the joy or the gladness, don't let that be a reason to keep you continuing to rest at First Mattress Baptist. Come and rest in the gathering of God's people together. Well, friends, one of the enemies that steals our gladness for worship is our busyness. Our busyness steals our gladness for worship. You say, how? Well, friends, when we, when it feels like during the week we don't have time to worship and other things and responsibilities just crowd our schedules, that even Sunday begin, begins to be a, more like, a, like the, the option of catching up on everything that we did not get to do during the week, if that's how you think of Sunday as a time to catch up for what you were not able to do during the week, coming to church on Sunday will feel like, ah, I know I need to be here, but I really need to be somewhere else to finish up what I need to do. Friends, one of the ways you can cultivate gladness for worship is clearing up your schedule so that it does not feel like corporate worship is always in competition with other responsibilities. Does your faith cause you to look differently at how you spend your week and your weekend. I was talking to a, to a couple this week about the importance of considering even preparing Saturday afternoon and evening to get ready for Sunday worship. So it doesn't feel like you're coming totally wiped out and totally without any energy to worship on Sunday morning. Another enemy that seals our gladness for worship is failing to remember its value. It's hard to find something in, a joy in something that you don't appreciate or see its value. Cultivate gladness for worship by seeing the value of gathering together with God's house, the people whom God has revealed, redeemed by the blood of Jesus. One pastor said it really well and in a convicting way. If Jewish people could respond with gladness to the invite to go to the physical house of the Lord, centuries before Jesus fulfilled all that the temple represented, how much more should we Christians experience gladness when we are coming together as the body of Christ, physically gathering and being the house of the Lord? Oh, friends, remember that when we are called to worship the Lord together in corporate worship, we are gathering as the body of Christ together who fulfilled all that the temple in Jerusalem was aimed to fulfill. Friends, the Old Testament believers should not be more enthusiastic than us Christians when it comes to gladness for worship. Do you realize the eternal value that God has bestowed upon us in the new covenant by sending his son, Jesus, to die in the place of sinners who turn away from their sins and trust in Jesus for their salvation? And do you realize the amazing grace God has bestowed upon New Testament believers to give us the Holy Spirit to come down and dwell, not merely in physical temple like in the Old Testament, but to dwell in each of us together so that where God's people are gathered, there the body of Christ is, there the Spirit of the Lord is. Oh, friends, when you remember this incredible grace, do you respond with gladness to be invited to such worship of God? If you don't, 
that I wonder if you've understood the grace of God. Gladness in worship is the first reason why the psalmist is excited about the city of Jerusalem in the Old Testament times. Oh, friends, how many, much more are we, do we have reasons to be glad for worship? Reason number two, why the psalm is excited and adores the Old Testament city of Jerusalem because of its unity in thankfulness under God's reign. Because of its unity in, its, in, in thankfulness under God's reign. We see this in verses 3 to 5. Uh, these verses say, Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. When the psalmist begins adoring Jerusalem, he speaks, first of all, about it being bound together. It's bound unity. And the language of being bound firmly together is not an accidental description of the city. A similar language showed up in the way God intended the tent of meeting to be built up in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 26, verse 11, God gave Moses this command about how to build the tent where God's presence was to dwell. One of the phrases is, and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. That was the direction. Couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. In a similar way, after David gets to come into the new capital city of Jerusalem after his kingdom was established, he enters in it and is describing the beauty of its unity, bound together, firmly established together. Now, why was it bound up firmly? What are the activities that were to take place in this city that was firmly bound up together? Two things. The priesthood, the house of the Lord, and the throne of David's kingship, of David's house. Now, put yourself, and this is important, put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite in 7th century B.C. Sometime after David had become king, after Saul died, David was installed as king, and it took about seven years before he actually made Jerusalem the capital of the, of the, of the newly kingdom of, of God's people. And after the time of the selection of Jerusalem to be the capital of this new kingdom, of the people of God, under God's reign, with God's king over them. What did David do to the city of Jerusalem? He did two things. The first was to bring the tent of the Lord with the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem. Because up until that moment in history, the tent was not in Jerusalem. During the time of the judges, the time was at the tent and the ark of the Lord was at Shiloh. And then in other places. But when David became king over God's people and established the city of Jerusalem as the capital of this newly made people, that newly made kingdom, David did what Saul never did. David did, David brought the tent, the ark of the Lord, with a priesthood to be relocated now to the capital city of the Lord, to Jerusalem. And what else did David bring? 
What else did David establish in Jerusalem? He established the throne. Here actually we read thrones of judgment. Thrones for his house. Thrones of his kingship. God had promised David to make him a dynasty, a house, and that God would put on his throne a king who will reign forever. So David established now thrones in Jerusalem. So what's special about the city of Jerusalem at the time that this psalm was written? For the first time ever, the priesthood of God's people moved to Jerusalem. And for the first time ever, the kingship of God's people moved to Jerusalem. And for the first time ever, they were both combined in the same city. So that the priesthood over God's people and the kingship over God's people would all be happening in the same place. At some point, centuries later, someone would come on the throne of David who would combine the office of high priest and the office of kingship not merely in the same place but in the same person because God's intent with the city of Jerusalem in the Old Testament times when David established the city was to bring the worship of God and the kingship of God in the same place, in the same city. This was God's intent with the city of Jerusalem under the old covenant to be a foreshadow, a real place, a real thing, foreshadowing the spiritual realities that the priesthood over God's people and the kingship over God's people would all be happening in the same place so that the people of God would begin traveling year after year, several times a year. The tribes of the people of Israel would all gather collectively in one place and experience God's priesthood and God's kingship in the same place, in the same place bound together, firmly secure. So that the whole city of Jerusalem was designed by God to point to spiritual realities that actually Jesus was to fulfill. Jesus was to experience. And through Jesus, to actually look forward to another physical manifestation of an amazing city who would be called the New Jerusalem. But until that time comes, the anticipation of that new Jerusalem is not the physical city of the modern-day nation of Israel. Rather, the anticipation of the new Jerusalem is actually wherever the redeemed people of God gather regularly and experience the priesthood of God and the kingship of God in the same place as they count their confidence in our supreme high priest Jesus, and as we recall and sit under the decree of our new judge and king, King Jesus. No, friends, for the new covenant believers, the Jerusalem we are excited about is not the physical city of the modern-day Jerusalem, but the dwelling place where God's presence and reign are expressly manifested. And on this side of eternity, before we get to see the new Jerusalem, that reality is the local church. The regular gathering of God's people for thanksgiving, for worship, and for judgment. Yes, for judgment as well. To sit under the decree of our king, and hear his judgments about what is right and wrong, what is just and unjust, how he decrees for his people to live. I love how Derek Kidner, one of the Old Testament uh, scholars, put it beautifully. What Jerusalem was to the Israelites, the church is to the Christian. And Martin Luther, uh, the, the famous reformer, said beautifully this, our Jerusalem is the church and our temple is Christ. 
Wherever Christ is preached and the sacraments are rightly administered, there we are sure God dwells and there is our temple, our tabernacle, our cherubim, and our mercy seat. For there God is present with us by his word. Well, friends, because of that, Christians ought to have a high regard, a high admiration for the life of this city, which is the life of the church. To be in awe of its unity, to be in awe of its worship, and to be in awe in worshiping the Lord with thankfulness under his reign. So let me ask you this morning, if you are a New Testament believer, a believer under the new covenant, do you adore the church for the same reasons as we see Old Testament believers adoring the city of Jerusalem? Do you adore its unity? Do you adore its gathering for thankfulness and for its sitting under God's word to hear his decrees, which were ultimately proven and shown to us through his king, Jesus? Do you see the place for the gathering of God's people as a place to express corporately your thanksgiving and gratitude to God for his grace of redemption? Or consider the other combination which is very strange to our world and our society. Can you gather to express gratitude to God in the very place where he established his thrones of judgment? Today in our society, the idea of gratitude and judgment seem to be very opposite to one another. Today we live in a society which if we sniff any presence of judgment, we become suspicious. But the tribes of Israel were going up to Jerusalem not only to worship and express thanksgiving to God, but to sit under thrones of judgment. It wasn't referring to the judgment of, of the last day. It was simply referring to the judgment of hearing the decree of God as applied to their lives, to their disputes, to their challenges. They would come to sit and ask the king to judge between their issues. Oh, friends, have you considered that the church is a place not only where worship happens, it's a place where, where the aroma of the gathering people is one of thankfulness. And yet, at the same time, it's a place where judgment happens. Judgment and thankfulness is not supposed to be opposite of each other. The judgment of God's word as he judges us, as he pierces our hearts, as he challenges our consciences. Sometimes some of you will say to me, how did you know what I was going through? I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, one couple once said that, that the sermons feel like people peeking into your window in your house, knowing what's going on in your family, in your marriage. Like, I don't, I mean, sometimes I know because you tell me that. But often I don't. It's a word of God who comes with its sharp edge to judge the inclinations and the motives of our hearts. You see, the gathering of a God's people is a gathering not only for thankfulness, but for judgment. And it's a good thing that we are being judged by the word of God now because he judges us in a gracious way, in a way that continues to invite us back to himself and says, come, come for worship. Come for, for, to experience a gratitude of redemption. No matter what's going on in your life, come to the Lord, experience his word, experience his decrees. Oh, friends, we must see that in the cross of Jesus, we see both a level of God's judgment executed against us and reasons for tremendous thanksgiving. Because of Jesus, we joyfully can submit to God's judgment through his word, knowing that God executed his judgment in Jesus so that now we can approach God with tremendous thankfulness. This is why 
This psalm was excited about Jerusalem because it was foreshadowing in very real ways a place of the people of God gathering regularly in unity for thankfulness and sitting under the decrees of God's reign over them. And a final reason, a third reason, why this psalm gives us re, uh, reasons to boast and admire the city of Jerusalem, seeking the peace of the city. The peace, the peace in the city. Those who have come to know God's grace long to promote peace in such a city. Look at verse 6 and 7. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. In these verses, the author invites us to, to pray. To pray for peace. And over and over again in these verses, peace is a big concept that is repeated. Because those who live under God's reign, under his king, and those who come to worship the Lord regularly with thankfulness, they are promised, they are given a place of permanent peace. Again, this call for us is a call to pray, not for the modern-day city of Jerusalem in any special way, because Christ came, the place where God's presence and reign are present is a gathering of God's people in the name of Jesus, and that's the church. So for us, the call to pray for peace is a call to pray for the peace of God's people wherever they gather in local churches. Friends, that's why we pray every Sunday, most every Sunday, not only for what's going on in the life of our church, but also for other churches in other places. Because we want to see the peace of God flourish and protect the people of God everywhere, in any part of the city or the world where the manifestation of this new Jerusalem is showing up in physical realities in the life of local churches. Notice that the peace prayed for is a peace within the walls of the city. Three times in these verses, the peace is only within the walls of Jerusalem. Look at that again. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. The city of God is a gathering of God's people for worship and for living under his reign. That city is to be characterized by peace and security. But such peace and security is only to be experienced within the boundaries of that city. There is no city. There is no peace promised here outside of it. There is a, a, a unique focus that the city has so that peace is within it. Friends, I wonder if there are some this morning who are still on the outside of this realm, of the, of the city of God, outside the walls of this gathering of God's people. Friends, to experience the peace of the city of God we must experience the one who brought true, lasting peace through his death and through his resurrection. I made allusion to this verse a few weeks ago, and it's very appropriate for me to bring this allusion again today. But as we think about the praying for the peace of Jerusalem, Jesus came to the city. And the gospel writer in Luke tells us that as Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You see, the city of Jerusalem, the physical city of Jerusalem, was not to be the permanent place for peace. Because when Jesus came to it, he found none of it. And he found not only none of it, he also found the people unable to see it because it was hidden from their eyes. He was the peace of the city. 
Because of him, because of what would happen to him, the Old Testament city of Jerusalem is presented as the city of peace. Oh, friends, the peace of the city of God was brought by God's own son who became human, who lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live, who died the death we deserve to die. And through his death on our behalf, we could experience the peace of this city, promised in the city, because he alone is the one who brings it. Those who turn to him are granted access to the city, are granted access to the peace of the city. And those who are part of the city of God, as it is represented through the life of the church, are called to promote and to protect the peace of the city. Again, not the city of the modern-day Israel, but the city that represents the people of God. The psalmist seeks this peace in the city, not for his sake. He seeks peace in the city for his brothers and companions' sake. Look at verse 8. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. How often we seek peace for our own sake. But here David seeks to promote peace for someone else's sake, for those around him. He wants them to experience this peace as well. Friends, we can be selfish in seeking peace. We can seek peace only for ourselves, for our own sake. What grace it is to seek peace for the sake of others. And the psalm in seeking peace closes on, on a commitment to seek the good of the city. But notice what motivates David to seek the good of Jerusalem. In verse 9, For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Friends, we return where we started. Why is David excited about the city of Jerusalem? Why is he excited and wants the good of the city? Because the house of the Lord was there. Not the architecture. Not the culture. Not the vibrant culture and the educational opportunities. Not the political influence. Oh, because the house of the Lord was there. Honestly, how many of you find cities today cool and exciting because of the churches that are in that city? How many today would choose to move to a different city or choose a selection of a different city based on the church they find in that city before they move? The reason why the psalm is excited about the city is for reasons very different than you and I get excited about modern-day cities. This psalm is excited about the city of Jerusalem because of its worship. It's excited about the city of Jerusalem because of its unity in thankfulness under the reign of God. And this psalm is excited about the city because of the peace that is promised to the city. But again, for us today, you should not walk away thinking, I need to get an airfare to go and visit the physical city of Jerusalem. That is not the application for you and I today. Listen to Hebrews 12, 22 and 24. The author of Hebrews is speaking to believers. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gatherings and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Friends, the life of Christians, as we gather in this city, in the here and now, before we arrive at that new heavenly Jerusalem, is the gathering of Christians every day, every week, in the house of the Lord as saints gather together. The life of Christians who are gathering regularly for worship, for thanksgiving, for sitting under the word, is foreshadowing our life in this city of Austin, 
really living life for another city, the city of God, the city of the living God. And this has implications for us. The life of the local church is a foretaste of the new Jerusalem that God is preparing for us. As we wait that final consummation, this psalm is encouraging us to be zealous for the life of God's people gathered together for worship, for thanksgiving, and for listening to God's word in his peace. I wonder if you are one who seeks the good of the city of the living God manifested in the life of the local church. Are you one who seeks its good for the sake of the house of the Lord? What is the Lord calling you to practically begin doing to show your commitment, your desire to the good of the city of the living God as it is now foreshadowed through the life of the church? Friends, if Old Testament believers were able to be excited and glad and committed to the good of the city of God as they have experienced it in the Old Testament times of the city of Jerusalem, how much more and how many more reasons do we have today to respond to the Lord and commit with gladness and thanksgiving to labor together for the peace of this city. We labor together, not merely through our efforts, but through our prayers. May the Lord help us as we consider, are you glad when you're called to worship? Do you adore the gathering and the unity of thankfulness under God's reign? And do you pray for the peace and the good of God's people? May the Lord help us do so. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are amazed by your design in your word from ancient times to tell us about how you designed your dwelling to be with us and that you would use the city of Jerusalem in the old covenant to be a foreshadowing, a foretaste of what you would do for us in Jesus. And through Jesus, what you would do for us today through the life of churches. Father, we pray that even our church, this particular gathering of believers, would be a sweet aroma, a sweet foretaste of what you are preparing for us in the new Jerusalem. Cause our hearts and our affections to increase in enthusiasm for you and to increase in our trust of being in fellowship with you and with one another in worship and thankfulness. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.